I used to think 50 was ancient. And now that I'll be 50 in a couple months, I still think 50's ancient. <laughs> right? And it, it's, things change when you turn 50. I mean, like, just for one. I've realized over the past couple months, like, doctor's visits. See, when I was younger, my 20s, and even in my 30s, I mean, I did 20 years in the military, and I may have been to the hospital a dozen times. Not because I'm a health nut, it's just, I probably like most guys, I'm just a little stubborn, and I just, eh, let it run its course, you know, we'll be fine. But the closer you get to 50, you know, <laughs> over the holidays, I, I came down with pneumonia. It was pretty bad. And last week, I have to thank somebody who went to Caroline Rosado's going away because they gave my family, my wife and I, the stomach flu. So thank you if you're here. <laughs> but I, I, I'm usually not that sick. So I go to the hospital. I had to go three different times when I had pneumonia. And I, and I realized there was something a little different because when I was younger and I'd go to the hospital, you know, they give you the clipboard with all the forms, right? And you're just like, yeah, 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 yeah. You sign it and you go in and you go in. And, and next thing you know, it would never fail. The lady said, so how long have you been pregnant? Who reads those things, right? But now that I'm 50, I'm going in, I'm really looking close at those, you know, because I've realized something over the past couple months when I was sick. Hey, I want to live. I want to live, right? And that got me thinking about a book that I read a couple years ago, and I shared a little bit out of it at a uh, men's retreat, and the book is called Change or Die. Change or Die by Alan Deutschman. And the subtitle asks, could you change when change matters most. Now, what if tonight you were given that choice, change or die? I mean, for real, not just hyperbole, but what if a, a well-informed, trusted authority figure said to you tonight, you need to make some difficult and enduring changes to the way you think, the way you feel, and the way you act. And if you didn't, you could die. Could you? Would you change when change matters most? Now, most of the time when I ask that question to people, I always get an emphatic, yes, yes, I would change. Well, the experts, the scientific experts anyway, they say you wouldn't. In fact, they have documented research showing that the odds of you changing are nine to one. That's nine to one against you changing. It's pretty inspiring, right? Thanks, Steve, for bringing this out and tell us we got a 10% chance of changing. But the reason that I bring that up tonight is because one of the examples on change that the author gives in this book, it lends itself to our message tonight, and I want to share it with you if I can. He said in 2002, the Justice Department published a study that tracked 272,000 inmates when they were released from 15 different state prisons. This was the largest study of criminal recidivism ever conducted in the United States. For those of you who may be unfamiliar with the term recidivism, Webster's defines it as, and, and this is kind of important going forward tonight, a tendency to relapse to a previous condition or behavior. A tendency to relapse to a previous condition or behavior. Now, the results of the study were alarming. Check this out. 30% of former inmates were rearrested within six months. 30% of former inmates. Folks, that's 81,600 people made a decision to go back to prison after they were released. Now, I know in books, news, even from pulpits, we hear a lot of numbers. We hear a lot of statistics. So let me give you, let, let me give you something here real quick. That's FedEx Field. That's where the Washington Redskins play. And we've even seen selfies from our own pastor from there. And more to come. Yeah. <laughs> Barring a few disgruntled fans, FedEx Field seats 80,000 people. Add 1,600 to that. And that's how many people made a decision to go back to prison in six months. There's more. 67.5% of former inmates made a decision to go back to prison. They were rearrested within three years. Within three years. 
Folks, that's 183,600 people were back in prison within three years. In 2013, the population of Newport News was 182,000 people. So let's add 1,600 to that number. And that means everyone who calls Newport News their home, plus 1,600, made a decision to go back to prison in three years. When I hear and I read those kind of statistics, it, 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 makes, me, it makes me ask, why? Why would anyone make a decision to go back to a life in prison after they were free? Now, to be fair, I've never been to prison. It may surprise some of you. I know it surprised Nick O'Cannon when I told him I'd never been. <laughs> I've never been to prison. But one of my close relatives has. In fact, he spent over 10 years in a Pennsylvania state prison. And we used to visit him. And I want to tell you something. That world is really different than the world you and I live in. See, that's a world with 20-foot walls around it and barbed wire. That's a world where you're told where to go and when to be back. You have no freedom. And that's a world where you are integrated with a population of people, barring a few exceptions, who don't like you. And they don't have your best interest in mind. And it's interesting because when my relative was released, we were having a conversation about his time incarcerated. And do you know what the number one topic of conversation was while they were incarcerated? All they have is time. You know what they talked about most of the time? Getting out, being released, having their sentence reduced. If that's the case, why would 81,000 people go back in six months? Why would 183,000 go back in three years? And yet, surprisingly, in some ways, you and I, we're not that different from the prisoners in the Justice Department study. And you know what? Neither were the Israelites. Tonight, I'd like to show that one of the problems, just one of the problems that plagued the Israelites time and time again, over 3,400 years ago, is still causing us problems today. And, and this is the most important part, and the same solution then is the same solution today. Now, before I tell you what that is, I want to draw up just a little bit of biblical context, a little Old Testament 100, okay? Now, most of us know that Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt. We know that from reading our Bible, Pastor Friend's sermons, and Disney's Prince of Egypt, right? We know that. When Moses died, Joshua took over, right? And Joshua was responsible for leading the Israelites into the Promised Land. And things were good under Joshua, right? Israel, as they say, were kicking butt and staking claims, right? People trusted him, right? They followed him. He'd proven himself. And that's a good thing because at that time, other nations had kings. Israel didn't. Israel operated, operated under a set of laws that God had passed down to Moses. When Moses died, he passed them to Joshua. But when Joshua died, God empowered judges to govern his people with these laws. And that's where we get the title of the seventh book of the Old Testament. What is it? Judges, right? Now, there's an interesting theme that runs through the book of Judges. An all too familiar cycle that I want to share with us tonight. It looks like this. They disobey, disaster, and deliverance. They disobey, disaster, and then deliverance. I just want to add something to this real quick. Check this out. Sometime after disaster and before deliverance, there's a person or a people group that are saying, oh, Lord, help me. Please, God, if you, I will. If you help me here, I promise I will never again. Right? Now, 
Some of y'all are looking at this like, huh, that looks familiar. That's strangely familiar, right? Look, don't feel bad. This was running through the book of Judges, right? Until the book ends with the following statement. The very last verse in the book of Judges says this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Remember I mentioned that. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Whatever they felt like doing, they did, right? But the book of Judges starts out much differently. Remember what I said. It's towards the end of Joshua's life. Joshua knows he's about to die. So he gets everybody together, right? And he wants to give them the final speech before he sends them out on their own. So he gets them all together and he highlights all the good things that God has done for them. Saved them, rescued us, you know, led them, fed them, did everything. And everyone's shaking their head. Yes, yeah. And then he has a really interesting dialogue with the people that I want to share with you because it's kind of reminiscent of maybe some of the conversations you've heard today. Listen what Joshua says. About to die, about to send them on their own, and this is what he says to them. Fear the Lord. Serve him with your whole heart. Put away your idols. Serve only him. Now, he says put away, so there's kind of, kind of infers that maybe they have some, right? And, and I think they were a little upset, and they're like, whoa, hold up, Joshua. We would never abandon God to serve idols. God rescued us and our ancestors from slavery. We witnessed his miracles. Look, we're, we're, we're only going to serve the Lord. Joshua says, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't think so. Yeah, I don't believe you're going to be able to serve only him. He's a holy God. He's a jealous God. And now they're like, oh, okay. Yeah, you're wrong. You're wrong, Joshua. We will serve the Lord. Joshua says, all right, remember this day. Remember what you said, okay? And your witnesses to yourself that you've chosen to serve the Lord. And listen to what they said. Yes, we are. We are witnesses. We will serve the Lord our God. Only him, right? Then Joshua dies. And I don't even know if the flowers on his grave began to turn when Scripture tells us the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight and served images of Baal. Listen what it said. They abandoned the Lord and went after other gods, and in turn, they angered the Lord. In, in other words, they did exactly what they said they weren't going to do. And what's the result of that? The people were in great distress. The Message Bible says they were in a bad way. They were in a bad way. Ever been in a bad way? Why? Why, after being rescued from oppression and bondage, being freed, would you go right back into it? Why would 81,000 people go back to prison? Why would 183,000 people go back in three years? Look, we're funny people. We get a taste of freedom, and we don't always use that freedom to help other people, to help their lives be better, to create a society that loves, that shows mercy. We don't, we don't always do that. Sometimes we get our freedom and we use it as an opportunity to demonstrate and advertise our independence. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. Nobody, because I'm free. I can do whatever I want, and I can do whatever I don't want. I can do whatever I want. I'm free. And when we get that kind of mindset, we get this, this type of spiritual amnesia, and we forget what God delivered us from. And we find ourselves going back doing the same things that he rescued us from. Well, at least that's what, that's what I did. 
That's what I did. See, I wasn't raised in a Christian home. I didn't grow up in church. God wasn't discussed around our dinner table. Oh, his name came up. <laughs> but not in a way I want to share here. So in 19, I joined the military, got married. Two years later, I held my wife's hand and said the sinner's prayer. She, who did grow up in a Christian home, recommitting her life to Jesus. Me, saying the prayer for the first time. And I felt amazing. I was free. I was committed. I was in for the long haul. Maybe you've heard of us. I was one of those people who threw away every secular cassette that he had. <laughs> now, I don't know if you all know what cassettes are, but we used to have like cases with clips on them and you open them up and there's notches and they were filled with cassettes and then you had to press board towers filled with cassettes. If it wasn't Amy Grant, Petra, or Carmen, it went in the trash. 1986, baby, American Mobile Home Park, Sumter, South Carolina, Van Halen, ACDC, Ozzy Osbourne, Journey, Boston, Rush, who got a shout out here a couple months back with Tom Sawyer. Every band that I had, if they weren't Christian, they were in the trash. You know why? Because I was committed. I was in for the long haul. And nobody was going to tell me different. Then something interesting began to happen. One cassette at a time, I started to build my collection back up. Right. So a few things started to make their way back in my life. Like drinking. Like profanity. Like lying like a host of other selfish behaviors that I lived and that for 14 years, round and round, until, boom, disaster. Disaster. I lived it for 14 years. And as I was praying over this message, God kind of showed me something. That every time that I cried out, every time I was like, uh, post-disaster, and there were a lot. He never said to me, no, you're not ready yet. No, you're not serious yet. No, because you're going to do it again in two years. No, because you're not as committed as you think you are. He never said that. He embraced me. And he forgave me. Psalm 34, 15 says, his ears are open to our cries for help. And he was there every time. Now, I'm not going to go into all the reasons tonight why some people lose their way. I'm not going to talk about all the things that cause people maybe to go back to the things that God delivered them from. I'm not going to go into all of that tonight. I'm not. But I'm going to mention one. I'm going to mention one, because it's the same one that got the Israelites time and time again and still causes us problems today. And this is it. Something less than God promises us more than God. Wait, and we believe it. And we believe it. Throughout our day, there are people, products, and places promising us what's going to make us happy, what we need to be happy, all day long. And most of the time, we don't listen. We ignore it. We see it for what it is. So we're like, ah, whatever, yeah, right, whatever. But there are those times when we believe it, when we believe it. 
That's just making these promises to us, and we believe it. And that promisor, folks, in biblical terms, it's known as an idol. Now, we don't hear much about idols today outside of American Idol. But it is just as prevalent today as a golden calf in the desert. Let me explain. An idol, ladies and gentlemen, is anything more important to you than God. It is anything that you depend on for your value, for your identity, for your purpose, for your joy, other than God. It is anything that is so essential, so central to your life that if you were to lose it, your life would not be worth living. It would lose meaning. So one of the questions I want us to think about tonight is who or what is king of our heart? Who or what is king of our heart? Now, since we're in church, I know our reflex answer is to say, God, I, I, I want you to pause. I don't want you to answer yet. I just want you to ask it and just give it a second. See, because Tim Keller, renowned pastor and author, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, said the human heart is an idol factory. And no doubt, he'd read Ezekiel 14.3, where God himself says of the elders of Israel, these men have set up idols in their heart. So maybe, just maybe, there's something tonight in our life that we are letting give us our self-worth, our security, right? Our stability, something in our life that we're holding on to other than God. Two thousand, two thousand six. We were in our last house for like ten years at that time, so we refinanced, and and I built up a little bit of equity. So at that time, I took out an equity check for $30,000. And I took that check, and I put it in my checking account. And let me tell you something. The minute I saw that balance, this blanket of peace rested upon me. I was in a better mood. There was a pep in my step. Good morning. I wasn't worried about anything. I wasn't worried about the furnace breaking. I wasn't worried about the car breaking down. I wasn't worried about going out to eat. I wasn't worried about birthdays. I was like, birthday? Psh, it's okay, but you want to go out to eat? Yeah, it's fine. Car's not running away. Don't worry about it. It's fine. And look, it's good to have a savings. There's great wisdom in, in saving for retirement. In fact, I, I recommend everybody Go to Nate and Laura Nowatney's Total Money Makeover. A lot of wisdom in those two and in the material. Right? little shameless life through plug. But that's not what I was doing. That's not where I was. So God speaks to my heart one day and he says, you know, of course I was really happy. I was like, hey. He's like, how you doing? I'm doing good. God. I'm doing great. You got a lot of peace, don't you? Yeah, I feel good. And he said, yeah, uh, son, your peace, it's in the money. It's not in me. It's in the money. It's not in me. And see, that's what we need. We need God to tell us sometimes when our hearts are out of order because we can deceive ourselves. We can go on believing that God's number one until he whispers in our heart. Because if anybody would have asked me the day before that, who's number one in my life? I would have said, God. Where's your security, God? Where's your safety, God? But he had to come in and say, hey, hey. No, it's not. No, it's not. And listen, before we go forward, look, look. God is not a megalomaniac who sits on his throne with a, an endless thirst for power, wanting your worship and demanding it. 
He, he, it's not like when you worship something else, he kicks heavenly stardust and is like feeling less than God because you're not, he knows, as a parent knows, that if, if we put our, our hopes and, and, and our identity and, and our purpose and everything in a resource, it's, it's finite, it's gonna cap. And when that happens, we're gonna be hurting. So as a father, he says, no, 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 no. I'm infinite and endless. Put it in me, the source. The source. Because the minute we turn our affections away from God and onto something else, idolatry gets a foothold. And let me tell you how that happens. It happens under a two-part equation. It's when we say yes to something or someone while simultaneously saying no to God. It's, it's going, yeah, simultaneously saying no to God. Let me show you, I call these the usual suspects. Here's just a few of them. It's not all of them. Here's just a few of them. Now, I don't know about you, but excessive appetite. See, I've heard God speak to my heart and go, Steve, are you ever gonna push yourself away from the table? I mean, you do understand that the, the term all you can eat is a, is a marketing thing. It's not a challenge. <laughs> can you just stop for a second? And I'm looking at thirds and I'm going, yes, no, no. And once, okay, twice, not a big deal. Consistently, and I begin to displace God. Insecurity. What, what did they say about me? What, I'm what? What? No. What did they say? Well, God says you're created in my image. I think you're beautiful. I think you have what it takes. I think you're more than enough. No. What did you say? I, I, I'm not pretty. I'm not good looking. I'm stupid. What? What? Media and entertainment. We know more about the Kardashians than the Apostle Paul. Bad relationships. Sometimes we hear God, right? Sometimes we hear him, but we'll tune him out. So he brings people into our life that says, hey, <laughs> girlfriend, he might not be the one. Hey, bro, I know, I know you're lonely. I know you want to get married, but maybe she's not the one. Maybe she's, maybe she's not. And they're like, no. What time are we meeting? What? Right? Keep saying no. God is displaced. Lust? Come on, really? We got to talk about it? Money? Again. Check out materialism. Listen how Webster's defines materialism. A tendency to consider material possessions and physical comfort as more important than spiritual values. I have to have this house. I have to have this car. I have to have these clothes. I have to have the new iPhone. You don't understand. Oh, no, I can't tithe. I have to have these shoes. No, I can't give to missions. No. But I have to have these. Come on. Runaway hobbies. I don't think I'm, I'm not even going to talk about that tonight. Politics and social issues. We will fall on a sword for an issue. We'll grab the banner and storm the Capitol for an issue. And then God will say, hey, can you just love them? Can you just love this person? No. Yes. Now, some of y'all looking at these and you're like, I'm good. I do P90X. I'm confident, not arrogant, in a good relationship with my wife, right? Computer's off every night at 11. I'm good. 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 Stay focused. But for those of us who still struggle with some of these, I want you to know there's hope. There's hope. But before I go into that, 
There's another area that, that we kind of overlook sometimes. I call these our usual suspects. I want to talk about the next things. These are gifts. Gifts that God gives us that when they're out of order can cause just as much trouble in our lives and our relationships. Marriage, what? I thought even, thought even makes sense. Marriage, what? At our story of marriage life group, this courageous young lady said, I thought getting, once I got married, I wouldn't be insecure anymore. Nope. She said, I thought once I got married, I, I'd stop comparing myself to other women. Nope. I feel like maybe I was, maybe I was making my spouse my God. John and Lisa Bevere, in their book, The Story of Marriage, said this. No matter how great your spouse is, he or she can never replace God. If you expect your spouse to infuse your life with purpose and meaning, blessings only God can offer, then you will find yourself disappointed, frustrated, and unable to demonstrate the love of God. Yeah. Marriage can move up that way, and so can children. So can children. And you can almost understand it. There's so much love there. We want to give them everything we can, and then suddenly they displace God in our life and enter dysfunction. We want to be their friend and not their parent. I, I would recommend everyone who has kids or is about to have kids to go to Vanessa's biblical parenting. Could you know I run life groups, right? It's another life group shameless plug, but really, biblical parenting, amazing. And these next three, achievement, competence and skill, right, career, God opens the door and he gives us these amazing opportunities to do great things for his kingdom, and we end up replacing him with these, Michelangelo, arguably the greatest artist who's ever lived, toward the end of his life, said that his, his work crowded out his faith. And, and he wrote the following right before he died. So now, from this mad passion, which made me take art for an idol and a king, I've learned the burden of error that it bore. The world's frivolities have robbed me of the time that I was given for reflecting upon God. Intelligence and education. My identity's wrapped up in my degrees. Beauty and health. Plastic surgery to high fashion. You know, what is it? Morality and self-righteousness. It's not about him, it's about how good I am. We get caught up in this. And what's the last one? <gasps> Ministry, what? Listen to what Oswald Chambers said. Beware of anything that competes with your loyalty to Jesus Christ. The greatest competitor of true devotion to Jesus is the service we do for him. Can I have the worship team come back up, please? So what do we do? What do we do if maybe one or two of the usual suspects, maybe one or two of the gifts that God has given us, gets out of order, displaces God in our life. What do we do with it? We go back to Judges, chapter 3, where it says that God sold the Israelites into the, into the hands of the king of Aram for eight years. And then later it says he sold them into the hands of the king of Moab for 18 years. So what did they do? They did the same thing that I did 
after 14 years. They threw their hands up. And they said, God, I was wrong. And I'm sorry. See, I thought doing things that were right in my eyes would make me feel better, would give me purpose, would give me more of an identity. So the Israelites said 3,400 years ago, God, will you forgive me? Will you deliver me? And he said, yes, because you're still my people. And the same solution then is the same solution today. That if you're here tonight, and maybe, maybe something in here, caught in the wind through your heart, said, hmm, that's something I need to look at. Then all you have to do in this moment is to throw up your hands like the Israelites did and say, God, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Will, will you forgive me? Will you deliver me? And just like he said then, he says today, yes, because you're still my people. Now I'd like to say from that point forward, everything's smooth sailing. But it isn't. Because did you ever notice that when you try to replace God in your life, God doesn't kick and scream and call you names. He just steps aside. Let some conviction fall. You turn it down, and he stands to the side. And he waits. He waits. But if you try to replace an idol, something or someone that you put in that place, get ready for a fight. Get ready for a fight because it doesn't want to give up its seat. And you're going to find something about yourself in that decision. Something about your commitment. Something about his character. And something about that idol. I'm closing up tonight. I want to share a scripture that shows that our issue tonight was on Paul's radar. And this is what he said. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those things that are not God. But now that you know God, or this, I love this, or are known by Him, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable forces? And he goes on, he says, look, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then. Stand firm. Do not be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Folks, true freedom. True freedom. And the subsequent expression of that freedom is found within the confines of the Lord. So tonight as we as we go into some worship. May we just take a moment to make sure that here, now, in your heart, in your life, that Jesus is king of your heart. And if he's not, then make it right tonight. Let's worship. Close.
tonight with some pretty grim statistics from a Justice Department study. But what I didn't tell you was the story of Mimi Silbert. See, Mimi Silbert is a 63-year-old, 4'11", 95-pound woman with a PhD from the University of California, Berkeley. And Mimi started a rehabilitation home in San Francisco called the Delancey Street. And the Delancey Street houses and helps over 400 criminals, ex-cons, annually by promoting trust, respect, relationships. And at the end of four years, the residents, they're released from the Delancey Street to go out into society. And 60%, over 60% of the residents that are released from Delancey Street go on to live productive and fruitful lives. Whereas the Justice Department watched why over 60% returned to a life of crime, Delancey Street watched 60% go on to live fruitful lives. So what does that mean for us here tonight? What does that mean for us right now? What it means is the experts were wrong. People can change. I changed. You can change. We don't have to be subjected to that cycle of disobedience and disaster anymore. When we make Jesus the king of our heart, he restores our life. He reconciles our relationships. He gives us hope. He gives us purpose. And he gives us freedom. And may we always remember with that freedom to keep focus on, on the giver and not the gifts, on our deliverer and not the distractions. We'll walk out of here confessing with our mouths that our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And the most important part tonight is that you, standing where you are, have heard or felt the Holy Spirit that you would find some of the folks that are against the wall in the back for prayer tonight, and that we could all leave here better than when we came. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. Shine.